Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 59th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Steve Kokinos, the CEO of Algorand. Steve is the definition of a serial entrepreneur and one who has seen tremendous success. His company building roots go way back to when he was in college, where he launched a company called WebYes, which was acquired. He was then a co-founder of BladeLogic, a company that went public and was later acquired by BMC for $800 million. The next company he co-founded was Fuse, one of the anchor tech companies in the Boston tech scene that has disrupted the way companies communicate by removing those clunky old PBX systems to a cloud-based offering for enterprises. Algorand is another highly disruptive company as they have built a first-of-its-kind blockchain and cryptocurrency that is built specifically for business. The company recently announced a $62 million round of funding, along with the appointment of Steve as their CEO, plus the addition of Sean Ford as its COO. You might recognize Sean's name as he is the former CMO of LogMeIn and was a guest on our podcast back in March. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like how he built his first company and got traction with major customers while still in college, the story behind Blade Logic and what it was like scaling to the point of going public, the aha moment behind Fuse and why challenging market conditions ended up working to their advantage, all the details behind Algorand and what excites them about the company's technology and how they are bringing cryptocurrency and the blockchain to the enterprise, advice for entrepreneurs on figuring out sales and pricing, how to manage your company's culture and keeping the bar for talent high through hyper growth mode, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. Today's episode is sponsored by Pluralsight. It's amazing what machine learning can do. With the mounds of data being harvested every day, there's so much we can learn and create. Pluralsight, the technology learning platform, is using this data for the good of tech professionals everywhere. Their AI helps you see what level your tech skills are at and recommends opportunities to keep learning. Pretty cool, right? And they're looking for help to make their algorithms even smarter. If changing the way the world learns technology through the intersection of design, product, data science, and engineering is right up your alley, apply to work at Pluralsight. Here are two fun facts that you should know about Pluralsight's Boston office. The company acquired Smarter back in 2014, which was the initial foundation of this office, and they were just named a 2018 top workplace by the Boston Globe and one of the best workplaces for women by Great Place to Work. Want to work here? Visit Pluralsight.com backslash VentureFizz to learn more. That's Pluralsight.com backslash VentureFizz. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Steve. Steve, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. All right. I, I want to start off the conversation asking you a question about a book that I've read. It's called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. It is one of these must-read books that's on the shortlist of everybody. Uh, it was written by Ben Horowitz, who is now a you know famed uh, venture capitalist from Andreessen Horowitz. But when uh, what he talks about in the book at quite a lot of length is uh, him being CEO of Opsware, which was a company that actually competed against a company you co-founded, Blade Logic. So, um, what's it like having a book written about you that you're the competition? <laughs> well, I thought I think it's pretty interesting to see the you know the other side of it. I mean, for sure, in that market, it was like very much a two horse race, um, and I think we were both. You know, both companies learned a lot about uh, enterprise sales and but, you know, both also had like very different approaches to market. So I think like from my end, it was illuminating to see, you know, in detail kind of what the other end of that was. I, I think in a lot of ways we 
um, you know, made really smart kind of product decisions and go to market. Um, and, you know, they did very well also, obviously. Uh, but yeah, definitely, you know, you don't get an opportunity to see that sort of detail um, come out on on kind of the the other side of a, a very fierce competitive battle. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, that must be interesting because obviously you're living on opposite sides of the spectrum of trying to conquer this market and to see that level of detail of what they were going through and kind of reminisce what you were going through. That must be uh, just an interesting perspective. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's go way back. So where did you grow up? Uh, what did your parents do for work? <laughs> I grew up in Andover, Massachusetts, which is, uh, you know, just north of Boston. Um, you know, my father is a CPA. Um, it was, you know, very entrepreneurial, as was my mom, who was a dental hygienist. And, um, you know, outside of their sort of day jobs, you know, they always had like various, um, you know, businesses and, and kind of different things going on. So I think we were both my sister and I were sort of exposed to entrepreneurship at a, a really young age. And why did you decide to attend McGill University and study economics? Well, the economics part came later. I originally studied music in school and so uh, played guitar and spent my first couple of years um, on that was really interested in electronic music before it was fashionable, um, you know, but ultimately, you know, couldn't really convince myself that that was um, a career that I, I would be psyched to do for my whole life. Now, a common theme for what we're going to talk about is entrepreneurship, of course. And the uh, the first company that you founded was actually in college, right? Yeah, I was 19. Um, we actually started to try uh, started like a couple years prior. But, you know, this was early days of the Internet, you know, mid 90s. And there just weren't that many people um, that uh, knew a lot about how the infrastructure was was forming. And you know, we couldn't figure out how the Yahoo guys were going to make any money. Um, <laughs> we knew that somebody was going to have to pay for all the infrastructure. And so you know, we ended up being one of the you know really early kind of web hosting um, infrastructure providers. And you know ended up uh, supporting some really interesting applications. Um, you know, uh, like Sun Microsystems, electronic software distribution, uh, Lycos's auction sites. Uh, Fuji Films Digital Photo Service. So it was it was a really interesting time, um, and I think you know it's sort of a lot harder in some ways for um, for startups because you know back then there were so few people who knew what was going on uh, in the internet that you know nobody really asked kind of who they were doing business with. They were just thankful that somebody could help them out, and you know that really helped us grow for sure. But as a 19 year old, how did you know that hey this is something that people will need, and how did you know how, how to actually because it was a a technical problem you were solving. Yeah, well, I think what we knew or we felt very passionate about was that the internet was going to continue to grow and would be something that, you know, really, uh, you know, had the opportunity to change the world in the way that, you know, television and radio and telephone did, you know, kind of before. And and so I think we were definitely on the leading edge of, of that. And I think, you know, as sometimes is the case, I think when there's, there's new trends forming, um, often it's people who, you know, weren't entrenched in the kind of more traditional or more established businesses at the time then that can kind of see where those things are going. So I think we're fortunate to be in, in kind of that spot and, you know, knew for sure that we wanted to take advantage of kind of the forming market. And, you know, that seemed like a logical place to, to go after. And how did you get customers like Sun Microsystems, Netscape, Lycos? I mean, those were big names, you know, back in the day. <coughs> uh, we literally called them up. Uh, so <laughs> one of the things early on was even some pretty senior people at those companies would participate in kind of online message boards and forums. And there were just groups of people uh, that were kind of in those discussions. Uh, you know, so folks from Sun who were in their server business, uh, people from like digital and founder of MySQL was in, you know, a lot of the early discussions too. So we were just sort of in there and we saw that people needed help and we're trying to figure things out and, um, you know, just literally called them up and, and, you know, found a lot of interest that way. 
Uh, and so we ended up doing you know, a bunch of work with Netscape, with Sun, with you know, other companies as a result of that. All right, but so this was a time when you know, SaaS wasn't even something, it was an ASP application service provider. And you, know, you ended up getting acquired by a you know, high-flying uh, web consulting firm that was based in Boston called Breakaway Solutions. Like, like how did, what was that like when you're like still like either in college or just graduating from college that now this company that's skyrocketing, like, I don't even know where breakaway was in terms of size when they acquired you, but what was that like? Well, they were about, I guess when they acquired us, ultimately they were about a hundred people or maybe we made them, you know, a little over a hundred people. Um, that was a, you know, a crazy ride. I, you know, I, I think for us, we knew we had something of value. The market was growing really quickly. There were a lot of companies um, going public. Um, you know, at the same time, I think we, you know, knew that we were sort of young guys and and didn't have a lot of experience building companies at the time, uh, and that we could, you know, probably learn a lot and and be part of something that was bigger. And so, you know, for us, it made a lot of sense. They really needed what we had, and um, you know, spent a, a lot of time talking to you know David Acharya, who I worked with for a long time, and you know, ultimately, you know, made something happen there. But you know, I, I think on the flip side, to then like immediately be sort of thrown into a company that went from you know, around 100 people when we ended up there to 1200 people a year later and went public shortly after. And this was, um, I think, even now, looking back on it, it was probably what almost 20 years ago. Uh, that was a, you know, a crazy experience for sure. It definitely was. It was crazy times then. Uh, but from there, so you went off and uh, was a co-founder at Blade Logic, which also included some other folks that, from Breakaway and, and people that you'd worked with in the past, right? Yeah, so Dave, who I mentioned, Vijay Manwani, who was the CTO at uh, Breakaway, uh, Vance Loisel, who um, ran product there. Um, and, you know, we all kind of left uh, together. And I, I guess, the, you know, they really, the, the idea for us was as we continued to build the hosting business um, at Breakaway, we realized there weren't a lot of tools to automate, um, you know, just sort of day-to-day -day operations of, of what was becoming increasingly complex data centers and servers. And so, you know, really, I, I think what we did and what Observer was doing at the time represented kind of the first uh, attempt at, you know, kind of large-scale automation of, of data centers, which then morphed over time into, you know, really a lot of the, the cloud best practices that we see um, in use today, you know, with like Amazon Web Services and, and you know, other folks. And what was your role? Like, I know there was multiple co-founders. So what, what role did you take on for Blade Logic? Yeah, I was really focused on, you know, biz dev mainly. And, and um, you know, I think as with like any company early, like everybody has sort of a, a hand in product and strategy. But, you know, definitely as we got bigger, you know, thinking about who go-to-market part partners would be, um, you know, just sort of helping, you know, find initial deals and, and um, you know, resellers and, and uh, business partners is, is something that, um, we spent a lot of time on and that's, you know, that's where I spent a lot of my time there. Like what was the, um, what was it like, like, you know, companies obviously, uh, you know, hit milestones when they go public and Blade Logic was a company that did IPO back in 2007. So what, what was that process like? And, and, you know, what do you remember from that? Yeah, I think it's, you know, look as, as a, I think, um, I guess I would just say as an entrepreneur, you probably you spend more of your time in smaller companies than in bigger ones. I think, you know, as you just grow and scale a business, you know, I, you know, I've been fortunate that, you know, a few times now to have been kind of uh, able to get companies to a scale where that's an option. And so I think, you know, as we start to think through, um, you know, how the company grows and what the next steps are, you know, it just sort of became the the right move to make. But, you know, definitely, I think a lot of it is, you know, it, it also, um, 
you know, kind of the IPO process is a good reason to, you know, start to bring discipline and controls into the business and, you know, really start to mature the organization overall. And so I think, you know, there's sort of a, a series of steps that, that tend to happen. Um, they start to happen, I think, anyway, by sort of by necessity as companies get larger and then, you know, you kind of just take it step by step from there. And just, I guess, to you know, round out the story, a year later, it was acquired by BMC Software for $800 million. So, you know, back in those days, that was a huge, huge home run. <laughs> yeah, it was great. I mean, look, that was a very interesting experience. I learned a tremendous amount, um, not only, you know, about kind of scaling business, but also about enterprise sales. You know, we learned a lot of lessons along the way, for sure. And so um, it's definitely uh, experience that I've taken with me, you know, throughout my career since. Now, the next company that you uh, co-founded um, is one of the anchor tech companies in the Boston tech scene, uh, originally started out as Thinking Phones. Yep. So, so talk about the foundation of what is now Fuse and kind of that aha moment that led you and Derek <coughs> to, to start this company and uh, take on a totally different market. Yeah. Well, I, you know, one of the things that always struck me, um, you know, a, over the years was how just kludgy and uh, not user-friendly uh, communication systems were. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we started looking at it and, you know, there's clearly a trend toward moving applications um, to the cloud and, you know, felt that there was no reason that uh, you know, telecom and voice and video and collaboration shouldn't go the same way. We were obviously like very early in the market there, um, but, you know, I think that was uh, a good observation. And, and so from there, you know, really started to dig in. I, I guess what we learned over time was to really tackle that at enterprise scale um, is, a, is a pretty complicated, um, pretty complicated task. And, you know, to take on the surface area uh, that, you know, a lot of tech giants have, have um, spent quite a bit of time on is, um, you know, definitely had, uh, you know, there's a lot of nuance to um, that business that, that we learned. But really the idea was a simple one, which is, you know, we thought there was an opportunity to change how people communicate at work and have them let be less tied to um, bound to their desk, be less down, bound to things like physical phones and really enable them to communicate from uh, communicate both however they wanted and from wherever they wanted, whether people are working from home or, you know, at an office or wherever. And uh, I think, you know, what's interesting is like we've I think definitely we, we found a, a good, um, you know, found it there. And you know, I've really been able to reach a lot of people uh, out in the enterprise. So it's it's been a that's been a fun uh, fun one for sure. One of the challenges that entrepreneurs and companies face is timing, time to market. And you know, the, it's not like you started Fuse five years ago, where yeah, you know, it's commonplace now to have the PBX system no longer in the closet. Um, I would imagine when you were starting out the company and trying to get the initial customers and sales that you had to do some evangelizing that this is, you know, the future. Yeah. I mean, well, look, I think when we started Fuse uh, or Thinking Phones, um, one, people we knew thought we were crazy for getting into that business at all or if we've been right. trying to do what we were doing. Uh, and I think by and large, a lot of our prospective customers thought we were crazy also. Uh, <laughs> You know, I'd say for the first several years, um, we really had to evangelize every deal because we were first asking people to just kind of fundamentally rethink 
um, how not only how they're communicating, but how they were consuming and buying um, and and, you know, what the technology behind it was. And then secondly, once we got them over that hump, we had to convince them that we were the right people to work with. So it was, uh, I think, definitely a, a pretty heavy lift um, in the early years to, to convince people that um, moving their communication infrastructure to the cloud was the right decision. Um, but you know, I, I think like everything else, that might have been one of the later applications to move. But I think, you know, we saw this big wave coming um, where, you know, virtually all applications are going to be um, moved to a consumption model versus, you know, physical hardware infrastructure. I mean, because back then the early adopter customers, I'm sure they were like, do I choose Cisco, right? The one that <laughs> I can't get fired for choosing Cisco, right? Or do I choose, you know, thinking phones, which is kind of a risk. So how do you convince that? buyer that you know it's it's worth the risk i well the net is we had to have a much better solution it wasn't like we could just be a little bit better or a little bit cheaper mm -hmm. we had to really um you know convince people that we had something that was an order of magnitude better um, than the traditional systems they were using and you're right nobody was getting fired for buying cisco or you know other products um out there but but they definitely saw us as a risk um i think where we uh, managed to get some early traction and and um, focus our time with companies that had, you know, really defined business reasons why moving to the cloud was, was almost a necessity for them. And uh, I think we found, you know, a few kind of niche areas. We weren't really vertically focused, but we it was definitely companies that had large distributed workforces um, or had, you know, many offices. Like if you have hundreds or thousands of offices and, and workers working all over the place from home, you know, the costs were just like stratospheric for them. And so we were really able to kind of um, bring that both uh, down from a cost perspective, but also just enable the people at their company to, to communicate with each other in a really seamless way, which they had never been able to do before because they were literally managing, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of disparate systems um, and nobody even knew what they did anyway. So, you know, bringing everybody under kind of one umbrella, allowing them to communicate really seamlessly, you know, has really changed, I think, the way a lot of people um, work every day. And do you think the, uh, the, the timing uh, you guys were... You know, you, you, you were bootstrapped primarily for a long time and you were built up the technology during the financial meltdown of 2008, 2009. I'm not sure when your first, you know, went to market as far as selling this, but um, do you think that was a huge benefit that kind of gave you a competitive advantage of building such hard tech early on versus what a competitor could do? Well, we sort of made the the conscious decision to bootstrap for the first little while. One, while we figured out the market, and, and two, you know, we realized the tech was going to be complicated, and so we felt it was better to, you know, sort of get our arms around some of the difficult problems uh, and and sort of the back end tech um, before we started to to get more aggressive in the market. Uh, you know, I, I don't think two thousand eight or two thousand nine was good for any startup. I'm sure there's someone who bucked the trend there but you know it was a difficult time i think in retrospect though when we got into the market it was it was a little bit early and so in a way the fact that the market had a little bit of a dimmer put on it um you know might have been for the best because it gave us some time to sort of you know get ourselves sorted out get initial customers uh, make sure they're happy and and you know then make a bigger push into the market a, a little bit later and that's um, when you actually went out and raised venture capital and accelerated sales yeah, and so I think uh, that I think we did our first institutional round uh, the end of 2012. Um, you know, and obviously raised a lot of money between uh, you know 2012 and today, about uh, half billion dollars. And do you know how many employees are at Fuse now? Uh, I don't know the exact number, but you know, it's around 700 people. Well, now you're off and doing something new and exciting. And that's something I also thought was always interesting about your background is you're not doing the same thing over and over in the same category. 
So what are you up to now? Yeah, so I'm the the CEO of Algorand, which is a uh, new foundational blockchain uh, and cryptocurrency project um, based here in Boston. It was founded by uh, Silvio Micali, who's a, a really the founder of modern cryptography and uh, a Turing Prize winner, uh, which is the really the kind of the highest honor in computer science um, for academics. And you know, he saw uh, sort of the innovation and and some of the interesting possibilities that uh, the blockchain space. Um, provides and and thought that uh, tech, Bitcoin and and some of the other technologies that that sort of um, emanated from that movement were both you know incredibly innovative but also um, really sort of first generation and and so you know he sort of took it on himself along with you know a, a group of people to um, really reimagine um, how the technology could work from the ground up um, and create something that that could be used broadly um, by you know hundreds of million or billions of people around the world and could really serve as a, a foundation for a you know new form of I think financial system in in a lot of ways. So now, what was it about this opportunity that you saw that this is transformative? Because I think that's a common theme for your background of building businesses. You know, Blade Logic went public and was acquired. Fuse is a large, you know, anchor tech company that has a very, you know, positive future. Uh, what what was it about Algorand that you like? This is a transformative business that I want to be a part of. Well, you know, what was most interesting to me is I think if you look at the blockchain space. Um, it has a lot of similar characteristics in terms of just sort of growth, in terms of kind of the hard science behind it, uh, and you know potential to change the world that the internet had, uh, you know, 20 or so years ago. And you know, I think from my perspective, I haven't really seen those dynamics since kind of those early days. Uh, and you know, as start, I started to get interested in the space and was was introduced to to Silvio, and you know, felt. That if you really sort of decompose the the internet era, um, it wasn't really the first people in um, that you know had the biggest impact. Um, it was the companies that came a little bit later, like the Googles and Amazons and eBays and, and others, and you know they were able to really create uh, I think generationally meaningful companies. And so, uh, you know, from my perspective, you know, it seemed like uh, the work that that Silvio and others had done, you know, really solved some of the hard technology problems. Um, that have been sort of in this space for for years, and that the timing was also felt right to me because it you know really kind of on the I think cusp of of you know blockchain moving into the mainstream uh, and you know really seeing you know larger enterprises and institutions um, starting to adopt it as as one of the the ways they do business. So are there actual like use cases like you know companies using Algorand solution or like what are the primary use cases that you're envisioning? Well, you know, we see Algorand as um, one of, and and you know, we see obviously there's established players like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, we, you know, our the way we see Algorand is as a decentralized economy, and we think that that decentralization brings a lot of benefits um, to businesses. Now, Algorand will be a, a public. Um, what's called permissionless, meaning open to anybody. Anybody can join. You don't have to sign up. Um, blockchain um, and also a, a digital currency. Um, and you know, I, I think one of the things that's sort of um, not well understood in the space is that you know, really decentralization is one of the the big um, big elements of um, both blockchain and you know, sort of public. Uh, public systems, and and what that really does is it opens new markets. It means that you know people can transact with each other. They don't have to be in the same country. They don't have to be in the same financial system. Um, they don't have to be in the same place. And blockchains create a way 
for people that have no reason to trust each other um, to be able to transact uh, you know, anywhere at any time. And so I think, it, you know, when you, when you kind of take that a step further, um, it eliminates censorship. So there's no way because nobody, one person is in control of the system. There's no way to censor people's wishes, censor their transactions. And I think more than that, uh, if you think about stewardship of data, um, obviously there are, you know, many tech giants that control a lot of our personal data today. I think people are starting to question whether um, we want that controlled by, you know, a few central entities. And so, you know, we really see, you know, sort of blockchain and decentralization as, as hand in hand. And, you know, we will be, we think probably, you know, one of the few um, players out there that are, are really pursuing um, not only, you know, the ability to transact at very high volume and scale and do so securely, but also um, doing so in a very decentralized way. Decentralized way, and you know, ultimately, if if you look at um, what happens when you remove sort of borders from the equation, um, it means that you have um, the ability to bring new new participants uh, into capital markets. Um, you have the ability to, you know, offer products and services to a much bigger user base than than you might otherwise, and we think those are really interesting um, facts that are, are going to help companies as they start to think about, you know, how they go into market, how they go to market, what types of products they offer, and, and who might be consumers of those those products. Um, and so it's, I think it's a it's a pretty exciting. Um, it opens a pretty exciting world of opportunity, um, not only for companies like Algorand, but for anybody who might build products on top of our ecosystem. And so I guess the challenge, or I'm sure there's multiple challenges, but one of the challenges is to convince businesses that this is, you know, their future of what they need to be doing. Well, for sure. I think there's, uh, you know, as with any any new technology, there's always some evangelism um, that needs to, to come out there. Um, I guess one of the things we found is that um, there's a huge and very vibrant community, you know, today, the, you know, blockchain space has a tremendous amount of activity in it. There's a lot of uh, new technology. There's a lot of people pursuing different projects. Um, so it's, it's an exciting place for sure. Um, I think on the flip side, you know, we've also found that while there's interest from a lot of established businesses, um, both enterprises, like people like financial institutions, app developers, uh, you know, those, uh, you know, there's also confusion about, you know, how you might take advantage of, of technologies. And so one of the things that, you know, we think is really great here is that not only do we have um, a great, you know, group of scientists and technologists, um, but we also have, you know, business people, product folks, developer relations, and we're really thinking about how you, um, you know, bring kind of the technology into the mainstream and how we really help um, businesses who are contemplating um, decentralized applications uh, so that they can bring them to market in a, in a way that makes sense. And we can help them understand, you know, not only the technology, but the economics behind it as well. Now, the company just recently announced 62 million in funding and other team members joining uh, you, obviously. And then Sean Ford, who we had on our podcast not too long ago, uh, the former CMO from Log Me In. Uh, so it's, it just sounds like there's a, a massive opportunity here to build another anchor company in Boston. Yeah, we I mean, we're really excited about it. I think what we're also excited about is that it's, a, you know, really an ecosystem of, of, of uh, you know, companies. Um, you know, we're working with several people that we hope will be building on top of Algorand or we'll, we'll really be a foundational platform. And I, I think one of the, the simplest ways, if I just circle back on your previous question to think about what Algorand is, is um, or really what the blockchain space Today, the blockchain space is in a lot of ways is like the internet before there was bandwidth. So if you think back to days when you had to use your dial-up modem and we're trying to 
you know, surf the web. It was slow and painful and, and cumbersome, but yet captivating and interesting um, at the same time. And a lot of people could see where the, the future um, would head. I think the blockchain space is in very much a similar place where um, the technology that's out there has really captivated people's imagination. I think there are a lot of interesting applications um, that people are thinking about. But what Al Algorand really represents um, is, uh, you know, bringing kind of the, the scalability and bandwidth to the uh, in, into the market that enables people to deliver applications of whatever size and, and scale they want to. So why do you keep building companies? <laughs> um, you know, I, I think for me, since I was young, I think whenever I've seen uh, something that, that was compelling and I, I felt passionate about, um, you know, I, I've always wanted to to go and, you know, pursue it and, uh, you know, bring it into the market. And I, I think this is no exception. Uh, you know, we feel for sure Algorand can be, you know, another anchor company in, in Boston, but also, you know, can be one of the, the sort of foundational technologies that's um, that's used in sort of the emerging decentralized economy all over the world. So I think one of the, the interesting things about the, the fundraise for us was that, you know, we did it a little bit differently than um, we have in the past. Um, you know, I think ordinarily, in most cases, you know, sort of look for one lead investor and, and go um, kind of raise money on that basis. Um, we brought together really a group of about 30 investors from, you know, around the world. They, they were, um, you know, uh, blockchain and crypto influencers, financial institutions, um, traditional VCs. And what we really wanted were people all around the world. And I think we have supporters from, you know, virtually, you know, every continent where people live um, that are both investors, but also helping build the community in their respective areas um, and kind of get the word out about the project. So, you know, we're excited about both, um, you know, being here in Boston and, and uh, you know, building a, a really interesting business, but also really excited about all the support we have, um, you know, all over the world. Now, for, for entrepreneurs, um, you know, Building a product is obviously very hard. Having an idea is hard too. But figuring out your sales strategy and figuring out you know how to sell what you've built, uh, like what what advice would you give for entrepreneurs on figuring out sales? <laughs> well, I think that's uh, that is a good question. Um, you know, I think sales is like one of the trickiest things in uh, building a business. Uh, you know, nobody projects themselves to be out of business, and nobody projects themselves having a difficult time selling it. I, but, you know, I found in my experience that getting sales right is is probably one of the most, you know, complicated parts of, uh, of business. And I think it comes down to, you know, sort of a, a series of different things. One is understanding product market fit from early on, uh, you know, also listening to what prospective customers have. Um, but it's a little bit of a, I think, a fine line because you need to be, you need to explain to them what you're doing and put a stake in the ground, but you also need to listen to, to sort of what they, what their thoughts are. Um, you know, I was like the Henry Ford line. If I asked my customers what they want, they'd tell me to, a faster horse. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think you have to kind of, you know, navigate those waters, you know, and I think what ends up happening, you know, from there is if you do a product market fit, um, it tends to be the sort of founders or early executives that, you know, do a lot of the selling early on. Um, but then you have to, when you, you get to an inflection point where it's too big um, for just that group of people to be able to manage the deals, you know, then you have to really start to, to put process in place um, and bring kind of the right sales leadership and sales folks in. Uh, so it's, you know, I'd say a step-by-step -step process where, you know, if you can never get to the point where you need to scale, then 
you know, obviously something isn't working from a product market fit. Um, but then I think each of those steps along the way um, is sort of deceptively tricky to kind of get the right pieces in place um, and move from, you know, something very small to something a lot larger. And you know, I, I've for sure been fortunate to have been part of, you know, several companies that have kind of navigated those transitions pretty well, I think. What about pricing? How do you figure out pricing? <laughs> I, you know, I think that depends on the product for sure. Um, I, you know, if you look at something like, um, you know, Fuse, I think one of the the sort of good and bad parts, uh, the good part there is like Fuse is in an enormous market, um, you know, and, and like as an example there, uh, you know, when Fuse goes in, typically four or five, six different applications um, are being replaced. And so there's sort of a way to like assess what the economics of that are. I think in, if you're starting a product that's something completely new that people haven't seen before, you know, and usually the, the, you know, the way I've seen people back into it is you, you know, really try to understand the value you're providing. Um, and if it, whether it's cost savings or whether some new value you're bringing to the table and, you know, capture as much of that as you can. So you know, it's a little bit of an art, I, I think more than a science, especially early on. Um, but, you know, finding something that you can anchor to, to um, that, that sort of makes rational sense for customers is important for sure. And then once you kind of hit that product market fit and scale and you're starting to hit hyper growth mode, like, like how do you manage your company through that? Like, like what, how did you learn how to, you know, grow and scale a company and, and manage an organization through that hyper growth mode? Well, I think it's a tricky, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely pretty tricky. I think, you know, the experience itself, um, you know, kind of, helps you work your way through it. Um, but I think one of the most important things is having, you know, a really good team around you, having people that, that you know, do have experience at different amounts of scale. And you know, I think in part, it's just making decisions quickly. Um, I think if you're growing very quickly, you know, you're going to need new people, different people all the time to sort of help you be successful. And so, you know, making sure that you have the right team kind of around you and uh, people that can, that have some experience, um, you know, where you don't is really important. And it's very common that each stage of the business requires different skill sets of people that have done that before or whatever the case. But regardless of stage, like how do you go about about evaluating talent, like, you know, hiring for your team? Yeah, I mean, I've, I spent a lot of time uh, on hiring and recruiting. It's something that I, you know, I, I feel that, um, you know, company culture is really a reflection of the people who are there and their personalities. Uh, I think it obviously also sort of represents the founders and, and the people who were there early, um, but it, it, you know, kind of changes over time too. And I think that's just by nature. If, if you know, a company is growing really quickly every year, then it's, it's going to have a different group of people and, um, you know, a bit different interests. And, uh, you know, something that I've always tried to do is, is sort of guard the culture as, as much as possible, or at least um, have people here for me um, what things are important. And, you know, as an example, at, at Fuse, I, I interviewed uh, the first 500 people um, that we hired, you know, myself. Wow. Um, it was, you know, <laughs> I think both obviously took a lot of time and, and effort, um, but I think people really appreciated sort of hearing directly from me, um, you know, how I thought about the business. Also, it's just good for people to, you know, know who they're working with um, and just understand who everyone is as a person. And so I, you know, I think that's, um, a little bit underappreciated often in, in kind of the hiring and recruiting process because we, you know, we want people, um, 
you know, was always the case at Fuse. It's for sure the case here at Algorand as well. You know, we want people that are going to fit into the, you know, unique culture of the business. And, um, you know, everybody that comes should be additive and, and should bring something um, that wasn't there before. And so I, I think that's both true just in terms of their ability to get their work done, but also, you know, in terms of what they can contribute to the environment as a whole. Well, the other thing I think that is important to that aspect, um, A, you know, you're making sure that you're kind of the gatekeeper of the people coming into the organization and uh, the right culture fit of people that you're scaling and growing a, a company that fits with your parameters. But I also, on the flip side of that, if somebody uh, in a, especially a competitive market like this, if they're spending, if the CEO or the co-founder is spending time with that candidate, it's definitely going a long way in terms of the, you know, the belief and hopefully the sale that this person will join the team, assuming that they want to make that hire. That's the hope. It also uh, sends, I think, a, there's a subtler message that it sends internally, which is, um, you know, we want people to be hiring really good people and not just filling seats right? because they have a, an open hire. And I think, you know, for any manager, if they know that, that you know, the leaders are going to meet with that person eventually, you know, I think it makes them you know, think twice about whether they really have the right candidate before they, they kind of put that forward. And so I think it's a, it's sort of a good message in both directions. You know, one, for sure, we want to create a welcoming environment for anybody new who's joining and, and make sure that they understand, um, you know, sort of the, the values of, of the business and what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, but I also think it's good for the, for the people who are already here and who are hiring um, to really think carefully about, you know, who they're bringing in. So I think it, it, it's, it sets the right tone kind of in, in um, every direction. So what do you like to do outside of work? <laughs> oh, I have three kids. I, I like to spend some time with them uh, when I can. Um, uh, definitely. So spend time with family. I, you know, I, I try to run every day, um, you know, as, as much as I can. And, and um, you know, uh, yeah, that's, you know, I don't have a, I don't have a ton of hobbies. Ton of I, I don't kids. have a ton of time on my hands. I, you know, I, I spend a lot of time at work. Well, do you still play the guitar? Uh, I do a little bit now. We were just talking about this this morning, <laughs> thinking about forming an Al Grant band. That hasn't happened yet, but um, I actually did not play for a very long time. Uh, I guess sort of around when I started my first company, I decided I wasn't going to, um, you know, really pursue music um, as a career and sort of put the instruments down and didn't pick them up. But uh, my kids all play music and one of them plays guitar. And so I sometimes, you know, uh, we'll play with them and, and, you know, as a result, I've started to pick it back up a little bit, but, um, you know, I tend to be pretty maniacally focused on <laughs> a pretty small number of things. And, and, uh, so it's, it's, you know, it's something I wish I spent more time on. Well, I'm, I'm having this vision back at McGill. You, you were like the hot on campus band. Oh no. Nope. <laughs> Well, you said you were in electronica early too, so that was that was kind of interesting. I was that was interesting, but that wasn't really something that could be played live at the time. Like it's all mm. it's fashionable now, but it wasn't fashionable then. It was just uh, it was pretty new, uh, and yeah, I played classical guitar also, so it was um, there. But yeah, I, I think you know one of the things I learned is music for sure. It teaches you ways of solving problems mm -hmm. um, that are really interesting. I think there's a pretty high correlation between you know entrepreneurs and musicians. Uh, and I think it teaches you a way of thinking that, um, you know, is, is definitely helpful. That is a very true statement. So from these interviews, I have learned countless times how many people started out in music, like studying music or, you know, like David Friend from Wasabi and Carbonite. Um, you know, his background is all music. It's like just 
countless numbers of examples that I could go through. So we'll have to do a separate uh, story on venture fizz of the correlation <laughs> between uh, music and successful entrepreneurs. Yeah. Well, let me know. I'll, I'll join for that for sure. That's awesome. Well, Steve, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate you uh, sharing, you know, the history of all these great companies that you've launched as well as, uh, you know, the advice for entrepreneurs. Yeah, look, we'll, uh, you know, really excited about Algrand. We'll keep you posted on our progress here and, and hope to have more to share soon. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you share it with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. Plus, consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It all definitely helps. Once again, thanks to our friends at Pluralsight for sponsoring this episode. Pluralsight is a technology learning platform, and they are rapidly growing the team in Boston. If changing the way the world learns technology through the intersection of design, product, data science, and engineering is right up your alley, then you need to apply to work at Pluralsight. Visit pluralsight.com backslash VentureFizz to learn more.